Well, I'm excited to be here and I'm excited to share with you guys tonight. I'm also excited, kind of, because guess what today is? It is. It's not Father's Day, though. Guess what else today is? Yeah, oh, shh. You've got inside info. It's Christmas Eve. Did you guys know that it's Christmas Eve? Caleb, you knew it was Christmas Eve, right? Oh. Seriously. Okay, it's Christmas Eve. Tomorrow is Christmas Day. I did Christmas shopping today. Christmas Eve shopping, like, you know, last minute. You know, what better way to do it, right? I'll tell you what, though. It was a very quiet Christmas Eve at Chartwell. Very quiet. Because I actually think that it's not Christmas Eve for anyone else except for us. Tim's family had this bright idea that, oh, everyone's too busy in December. Let's do Christmas two months early. Two months early. I'm like, seriously. To be honest, I was just like, eh, whatever you want to do. Cool. So tomorrow is Christmas Day for us. So it's Christmas Eve. Put the phone down. <laughs> yes. So if you hear us saying Merry Christmas or whatever, then that explains it. So I've got to wrap presents tonight. I don't want to wrap presents tonight. I'll do it tomorrow morning. <laughs> Santa's not coming until December the 24th anyway, so it's all good, right? Yeah. All right. <laughs> so I watched a movie this week. Actually, I watched a few movies this week, and I have a disclaimer to make that each movie I watched, I fell asleep. <laughs> so I do this, do this thing where I'm like, oh, this movie's really cool. And it was a cool movie. And I'm sitting in bed watching the movie, and all of a sudden I'm just like, and Tim looks at me and he's like, are they your sleepy eyes? And I'm like, nope, I'm good, I'm good. <laughs> and then like two minutes before the movie finishes, I'm like, oh, what happened? <laughs> so I've had to go back and watch the end of three different things so far this week. Actually, there's one I still haven't watched the end of, but that's all right. But one of the movies that we watched is a movie called Now You See Me. So has anyone seen the movie Now You See Me? Yep. And then there's Now You See Me 2. So we watched both of those. Well, I've watched one and a half. So the premise of the movie Now You See Me is that there are four magicians, illusionists, mentalists that get selected. They are personally selected by someone they don't know to do a job. They have a mission. So they don't know who's chosen them, why they've been chosen or anything like that. They all just turn up at this place and then they're given this bunch of instructions of what they've got to do. So they've all been making their way, doing like not very successful stuff on their own. But they come together and they put on this massive show that they've been asked to do. All of them together. And it's incredible. It's huge. It's like, you know, lights and music and all the like pyrotechnics and stuff. And it's awesome. But basically what they end up being is like Robin Hood. They take from the rich and give to the poor. So in each of the different shows that they do, um, basically they're paying people back money that they have had taken away from them or giving them money because they can, they're not well off. Um, one guy, his business has ripped a whole bunch of people off and he doesn't realise he's brought onto the stage, he's part of the whole setup. he comes onto the stage and all of a sudden these people who his business has ripped off 
start getting money paid back to them and his bank balance goes down and down and down while they get the money back. He's not terribly stoked about that, understandably. It's not really how business works, eh? Is it, Kathan? (laughs) Okay. In my world, it's not really how business works, but I'm not really business savvy, so, you know, that's all good. (laughs) Um, But the thing about the movie is that they show you how they do it. They show you how they do these illusions, and that's what they are, they're illusions. But to the crowd, to the people who are in the crowd, they just see this stuff happening, they're just like, wow, this is amazing. How did you do that? They have no idea. And part of it, that they're talking about, part of the thing that they say is that when you are focused on what is going on, you miss the details. When you're so focused on the things that are happening, like how did these guys do this? You miss how it's actually happening. And I think that today's story that we're going to look at is a little bit like that. We look at things through our own perspective, through our own lens, We see things how we want to see them. We see things how we think they should be or how they are, but we don't actually see how they really are. We don't see them how Jesus sees them. So today's story is about a couple of people who are in a situation that seems hopeless, like there is no way out of this. Like just at the end, nothing can be done. They've tried everything they can and nothing can be done. They're hopeless. But that's the illusion. And I think Satan wants to keep us in that place at times that we are hopeless, that we are helpless, that nothing can be done. He wants to keep us focused on the issues and the circumstances so that we can't actually see how things can be done with Jesus, the one who died and rose to help us. So if you have got your Bibles or your phones, flick out of Facebook, go onto the Bible app, pick up your Bibles, and we're going to go to Luke chapter 8. Verse 40, and I'm reading from the Passion Translation. I like how the Passion Translation puts this scripture. All right. So starting at verse 40. When Jesus returned to Galilee, the crowds were overjoyed, for they had been waiting for him to arrive. Just then, a man named... Now, who knows how to pronounce this guy's name? Jairus, Jairus, yeah, that's how we say it. So apparently, Simon, can you remember how it's meant to be pronounced? Oh, come on. (laughs) Okay, it's meant to be (coughs) Jairus or something like that. But for the sake of me not making a fool of myself this entire scripture, I'm going to call him Jairus as well. All right. So just then, a man named Jairus, the leader of the local Jewish congregation, fell before Jesus' feet. He desperately begged him to come and heal his 12-year-old daughter, his only child, because she was at the point of death. Jesus started to go with him to his home to see her, but a large crowd surrounded him. In the crowd that day was a woman who had suffered greatly for 12 years from slow bleeding. Even though she had spent all that she had on healers, she was still suffering. Pressing in through the crowd, she came up behind Jesus and touched the tassel of his prayer shawl, and instantly her bleeding stopped and she was healed. Jesus suddenly stopped and said to his disciples, Someone touched me. Who is it? While they all denied it, Peter pointed out, 
Master, everyone is touching you, trying to get close to you. The crowds are so thick, we can't walk through all these people without being jostled. Jesus replied, yes, but I felt power surge through me. Someone touched me to be healed, and they received their healing. When the woman realized she couldn't hide any longer, she came and fell trembling at Jesus' feet. Before the entire crowd, she declared, I was desperate to touch you, Jesus, for I knew if I could just touch even the fringe of your robe, I would be healed. Jesus responded, Beloved daughter, your faith in me has released your healing. You may go with my peace. While Jesus was still speaking to the woman, someone came from Jairus' house and told him, There's no need to bother the master any further. Your daughter has passed away. She's gone. When Jesus heard this, he said, Jairus, don't yield to your fear. Have faith in me and she will live again. When they arrived at the house, Jesus allowed only Peter, John and Jacob, along with the child's parents, to go inside. Jesus told those left outside who were sobbing and wailing with grief, Stop crying. She's not dead. She's just asleep and must be awakened. They laughed at him, knowing for certain that she had died. Jesus approached the body, took the girl by her hand and called out with a loud voice, My sleeping child, awake! Rise up! Instantly, her spirit returned to her body and she stood up. Jesus directed her stunned parents to give her something to eat and ordered them not to tell anyone what had just happened. It's a pretty massive, loaded piece of scripture. There's so much in there. But to start with, I want us to take a look at Jairus and the woman. I just want us to have a look at some comparisons between them. So, Jairus was a well-known synagogue leader who was well-known and well-respected in his community. People knew him. The woman was unnamed and an outcast. Jairus had a 12-year-old daughter who was sick and dying, but the woman herself was sick and had been for 12 years. Jairus begged for Jesus to come with him to heal his daughter. But what did the woman do? She went to Jesus. She took her sickness to him. Jairus came and fell publicly at Jesus' feet. Publicly. The woman came quietly and remained hidden amongst the crowd until she knew she couldn't hide anymore. Jairus was rich and the woman was poor as all her money had been spent on remedies to get well. Jairus stayed with Jesus while the woman was healed and encountering him. Jesus was their last hope. Jairus was told to have faith that his daughter could still be healed by Jesus. The woman had faith already. She had faith enough to know that she just had to touch Jesus' robe. Jairus was fighting for his daughter's life, and the woman was desperate for her own health to be restored. Now, neither is right or wrong or worse than the other or better than the other. They're just different. But the common thing with both of these people is they were both they both felt hopeless. They were in all but helpless, completely helpless situations. They both wanted Jesus' help, and they both got more than they bargained for. So if you want, if you're taking notes or want to know what I've called my message, I've called it Beyond All Help. So I don't know about anybody else, 
But there are definitely times when I've felt like I'm beyond all help. There's been situations where I just can't see a way out. I don't know what's going to come of it. I don't know how to fix it. I don't know how to make it right. And the only answer is Jesus. Now, I'm blessed enough to not have been in a situation where I've got a child that's dying or would have had like a chronic illness for 12 years. But there have been places that I've been that I feel like there's been no answers and I'm just stuck and I feel helpless. So in 2007, Caleb was a cute little three-year-old. Oh, I should have brought a photo. I'll post one on Facebook later, okay, guys? (laughs) Or Instagram. He was a very cute little (laughs) three-year-old. He, um... (laughs) Which story should I tell Caleb? There was this one time... (laughs) Sorry, I've got to do this. This is the perks, man. Okay, he was probably old, younger than three at this time. But we had friends over and they've got a daughter who's a similar age to Caleb. I actually have photos of them in the bath together. <laughs> but he must have had like a bit of a cold and he had a snotty nose. <laughs> yeah. And we're sitting there in the lounge and they're playing. He blows a snot bubble. <laughs> And he goes, bubble, <laughs> bubble. <laughs> it was very classy, not the way to pick up the ladies, eh, Caleb? We've progressed from that, we've progressed from that. <laughs> it's all right, I won't post the bath photos, okay? It's all good. <laughs> anyway, he was a cute little three-year-old. Caitlin was about 10 months old. No, sorry, at this point in time, she was 10 weeks old. And Tim's brother and his wife lived in Auckland, and they wanted to move to Tauranga, which was great, because we lived in Tauranga, Tim's parents lived in Tauranga. Actually, for me, (laughs) the perk was if they moved to Tauranga, I could share the in-laws duties, you know? (laughs) I'd have another daughter-in-law living in town, so I wasn't the only daughter-in-law living in town. It's good. So they moved to Tauranga. We helped them move, and we were excited, because it meant that their youngest daughter, Jasmine, is the same age as Caleb. So it was cool. The cousins could grow up together, go to kindy together, we'd go to church together, do life together. And we were really excited about that. But later that year, we felt like God was telling us to move from Tauranga. So I left my daughter-in-law duties <laughs> to my sister-in-law. But we moved away from our family. It wasn't quite what we thought was going to happen. So we went back farming again and we found an awesome job. It was only 40 minutes away from Tauranga and our family, so it was nice and close. The house was good, the interview. I remember sitting there and the husband and his wife, I think they had a couple of daughters as well. Um, They were really lovely and they were talking about how they wanted it to be a community atmosphere and, you know, like in summer they've got a pool, we can go use the pool, do barbecues together and stuff. And we're like, oh, this sounds really cool. That's nice, you know, they were really lovely. So they offered us the job and we took the job. It was awesome. It was just what we needed and just what we felt like we needed to do. But it wasn't long before, guess what? It all turned to custard. The honeymoon period was well and truly over within two weeks. 
The first two weeks were awesome. They were amazing. They were super lovely. They were great. The next two weeks was just like, who are these people? Like we just, they completely flipped. The boss ended up being verbally and physically abusive. And it was a really dark space for us to be in and really confusing. Tim was having to deal with this guy every day. And I was at home, obviously, with Caleb and Caitlin and wondering what was going to happen. I had no idea what was going to have happened that day and how Tim was going to come home and what, you know, how that was all going to work out. So another two weeks later, we were due for our weekend off and Tim and the boss had had some hard conversations and the boss said, well, I think you need to go away and decide whether you actually want to work here or not. We kind of knew the answer. But when you are farming... It's not just, eh, this job isn't working out, I'll get another job. It's, this job's not working out. This is where we live. This is our home. This is where we're setting our family up. This is our job. This is our financial security. It's it's all of that. It's not just, "Mm, I'm going to just go find another job and then resign. It's it's everything. So we decided that we were going to move on, that we couldn't stay there. So we came back from our weekend off, and Tim said to him, sorry, we're out. (laughs) And then it got worse. (laughs) He threatened to call the police and put a trespass order out on us. Yay, that was great. So we've got Caleb, who's three, Caitlin, who's 10 months old, and we're just not sure what's happening, where we're going to live, what we're going to do. Do you know how long it took us to move out of that house? Any guesses? You can't guess. You already know. A whole season? No. Nah. <laughs> yes, six hours. How did you know? You're sitting next to Caleb. It took us six hours to move, pack up and move out of that house. Six hours. Because we've got amazing family and amazing friends who helped us out. And it was really funny, the, um, the boss and his wife were standing at the bottom of the driveway as we were all driving out, and they were just looking at us like, how did you guys move so fast? This is ridiculous. <laughs> I said this morning, I'm not sure if, um, Tim and I were good, I'm not sure if anyone else gave them a little bit of a one-fingered wave on the out or not, I mean, I'm not responsible for the rest of the family, <laughs> but you know... <laughs> So we moved from there, we were lucky to be able to stay with Tim's parents for a while, and then Tim's brother is a vet in Te Aumuru, and he knew of a Christian guy who was looking for a worker, and we ended up working for him. Um, he was Christian, the guy who owned the farm was a Christian, and it was just an awesome job. We were there for 20 months until we moved on to a better job for us in Morrinsville. So when we moved to Morrinsville, we started coming here, to it was east side when we started coming here. And now we're still here, and now we work here, and we love it. It's great. So it seems... <laughs> Dude, I'm speaking, not you. Keep it down. <laughs> so it seemed like a really helpless situation, you know? Like you've got a young family, and you've got no job, no home, nowhere to go. You just you don't know what you're doing. And you feel like God has called you from what you were doing to something new. 
but he never let us down. So there's three things that I want us to hear today. Three things I want us to ponder from the story. The first one, I want you to say it after me, is expectation. Expectation. The second one is desperation. And the third one is restoration. Awesome. So we have got expectation, desperation, and restoration. And even Tim got it wrong. He's heard this before and he got it wrong. (laughs) All right, so we look at expectation. So at the start of the story, we've got the crowds, right? Jesus has just been over the other side of the lake and he has sent this legion of demons out of the sky, into the pigs, off the cliff, and then been booted out of town. So Jesus has become quite famous for doing miracles and for stirring things up, I guess, and for being incredible. So they'd heard of him, all the things he'd done, and they were waiting for him. They were expectant for Jesus to come back. Luke 8.40 says, The crowds were waiting. When Jesus returned to Galilee, the crowds were overjoyed, for they had been waiting for him to arrive. But do you know why I think they were waiting for him? Because he put on a good show. I'm not convinced that all of them knew that he was the son of God. He put on a great show. He was doing stuff that no one else was doing. He was just like healing people and raising people from the dead and sending demons into pigs and running off cliffs. And I mean, it's not your everyday occurrence. It was like he was an exhibit. But they were expectant, and stuff happened when they were expectant. So this leads me to a question. We know Jesus is the Son of God, right? We know Jesus is the Son of God. How expectant are we for him to move in our lives and the lives of those we know, the lives of those people in our communities? So this crowd didn't know necessarily that Jesus was the Son of God, but they were still expectant. We know he's the Son of God. Are we expectant? It's undeniable what expectation does. It creates an atmosphere for God to move. It takes our focus of trying to fix things ourselves and puts them on God. The truth of the matter is God cares about us. He cares about you. He cares about every single one of us, and we matter to him. So Jairus was a prominent leader in the community, and people would expect that Jesus would help him. Why wouldn't you help this guy? He's famous. Everyone knows him. He's well-liked and well-respected. But would they expect him to heal this lady who is unnamed and outcast, unclean, and therefore making them unclean by being there? Both Jairus and the woman were expectant for Jesus to heal, not because of hype and fame and attraction, but because there was something different about him. They knew. They recognised something in him that wasn't magic. It was real. And then we've got the expectation of another crowd further in the story. So towards the end of the story, what do we know about Jairus' daughter? She was dead, and therefore people are sad. So there is a crowd of people who are mourning outside her house. 
what kind of atmosphere does it set when people are sad and mourning and crying? Hopeless. It brings that hopelessness and that helplessness to the situation. So what did Jesus do? He told them to go away. The only people he brought in with him to raise Jairus' daughter back to life were Jairus, his wife, Peter, James, John, and himself, right? People he knew had faith, who knew, expected the miraculous, expected him to move. In the most hopeless situation, these people still had power, had hope in the miracle power of Jesus. They were expectant. So then we go to desperation. Who knows that people are desperate for stuff to happen? They're desperate for help. They're, you know, there's so many self-help books. There's um, like apps you can use. I'm desperate to learn how to run. So I'm going to download 10 apps and that's going to make me run super fast and really well without getting like tired and dying. Doesn't happen. I haven't actually downloaded... Well, I, actually, I do have a lot of unused fitness apps on my phone, but whatever. <laughs> I'm desperate to be fit. <laughs> but these guys were desperate for Jesus. So in verses 41 and 42, Jairus, Jairus desperately begs Jesus. Just then, a man named Jairus, the leader of the local Jewish congregation, fell before Jesus' feet. He desperately begged him to come and heal his 12-year-old daughter, his only child, because she was at the point of death. So this guy is a well-respected Jewish leader. And what were most of the well-respected Jewish leaders doing to Jesus at the time? Cursing him, mocking him, planning against him. Jairus knew there was something different about Jesus, that he was the son of God. He was expectant and desperate for him. Him and his wife were desperate for Jesus to heal their daughter. It doesn't take long for Jairus' daughter to no longer be sick, but dead. And now they're back in a hopeless situation because not only is she sick and no one can help her, now she's dead and they don't think there's any point in bringing Jesus in. But Jesus quickly reassures them that his desperate plea is not in vain. And if we go to verse 47, the woman says, when the woman real." It says, when the woman realised she couldn't hide any longer, she came and fell trembling at Jesus' feet. Before the entire crowd, she declared, I was desperate to touch you, Jesus. For if I knew I could touch even the fringe of your robe, I would be healed. She is desperate to see Jesus heal her, to see the miraculous and experience it. And again, she's not wanting that, like, magical, oh, yay, Jesus, what a spectacle. You've, like, healed me. She's wanting to experience Jesus, him, his power. She wants to experience him for himself. There are times when we all feel like we're an outcast, like this lady, that we feel like we don't fit in, we don't belong, we don't have a place, we're unclean. 
were an outcast, but she risked her life coming into town because she was desperate for Jesus, desperate for his touch. And Jesus wants to encounter every single one of us. He wants us to experience him. He wants us to be desperate for him. There are times when we feel like her and Jairus, that we're hopeless, that there is no help, but that's what the enemy wants us to believe. God wants to help us. We can come to him desperate, knowing that we need him. Another thing I thought too is how desperate are we, so you know, Jairus went on behalf of his daughter, how desperate are we to see Jesus move in the lives of people around us? Thirdly, I want to look at restoration. So Jesus makes time for Jairus and his daughter and family, as well as this woman, right? But he doesn't just make time for them for Jairus' daughter to come alive. And he doesn't make time for the woman just so that she can be physically healed. He actually makes time for them holistically. So this woman, right? She's in this crowd of people. She sees Jesus. She touches the corner of his prayer shawl and she is healed. She knows she's healed. Jesus knows she's healed. What could Jesus have done? He's got Jairus with him. Jairus' daughter is sick and dying and needs someone, needs Jesus super fast. Did he need to stop for the woman? She was already healed. Her bleeding had stopped. He knew she was healed. She knew she was healed. Did he need to stop? Yes, because he cared more than just about her physical needs. He stopped for her. She shouldn't have even been in the crowd, but Jesus stopped and spoke directly to her. Jesus looks at the heart of their shoe, and in verse 48, this is loaded with restoration. Jesus responded, Beloved daughter, your faith in me has released your healing. You may go in peace. So he's already acknowledged that she's been healed. She's received her healing, what she's come for. But his interaction is so much richer than that. He calls her his beloved daughter, not just his daughter. He restores that relationship with God the Father, with him, but beloved. She's been an outcast for 12 years. And she's now called by Jesus, the Son of God, beloved daughter. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Peace can only come from God, right? True peace can only come from God. So God, Jesus, has just sent her completely well and with peace, restored with him, restored with God. And the same again with Jairus' daughter. My sleeping child, awake, rise up. And instantly her spirit returned to her body and she stood up. She didn't just come back to life. She stood up. She was completely well. She was restored back to her family. Her family, her parents were restored back with their daughter, with their relationship. And she was well. They told her to eat something. She wasn't just alive and still sick. She was completely well. 
If you're sick, you're not going to eat, are you? But she was alive and well. And her spirit was returned to her. She was completely healed and restored through Jesus. He, Jesus didn't come to die on the cross and come back to life just for us to acknowledge that we have a relationship with God. That's awesome, but that's not just why he came. He came to bring us full restoration. Full restoration. Despite what Satan wants us to believe, we're not beyond help when we're expectant for him to work. When we come to him desperate, knowing that our faith can only be put in him for a miracle and for restoration. Where we fall short, he reaches out and he says, daughter, son, you're mine, come to me. God wants to bring restoration to us. And he wants us to bring restoration to other people. He wants to use us as vessels of hope, healing, wholeness, joy, life, to represent Jesus. Jesus.